we've been looking at different aspects of the incarnation. Because when we come to Bethlehem, really Bethlehem is an inexhaustible theme. In other words, we can keep coming back there and keep gaining lessons and keep learning. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at incarnation, the risk. That was the risk that the Godhead took in the incarnation. And last Sabbath, we looked at incarnation, the revealing, what it shows us about God. And of course, it shows us that God's willing to go to any lengths for us because he loves us and reveals who God is. And, and we talked last Sabbath also about how often people have different concepts. You say the word God, and it will mean different things to different people. But the clearest picture of God is in the incarnation. That needs to be our kind of our touchstone or our benchmark for understanding who God is. This morning, I'd like to study with you the uh, incarnation, the reality, and kind of consider what it was like for Christ to become man. And I want to say in the very beginning that this is deep water, what I mean by that. There's a lot of questions about this. Uh, during Sabbath school, we were talking about a passage in Job, and Ben brought out a good point that the passage really didn't say certain details that we tried to read into it. <clears throat> it's the same thing with the Incarnation. There's a lot in the Incarnation that's not explicit in Scripture, so we need to think carefully over it. But the Incarnation has brought about controversy from the very beginning. Um, almost, well, from the very beginning, from the writings of the Gospels, the writings of the New Testament, there were questions about what this meant. And of course, you can understand this naturally. Uh, you know, to, to try to visualize it, the disciples saw Jesus simply up until the, up until the crucifixion. They saw him as what? How did they view Jesus? Okay, teacher. So what did Jesus do every night? Well, not really. There were some nights he prayed all night. But most nights, what did he do? He went to sleep. And then when he got up and somebody made breakfast, what did he do? He ate. And, you know, the sun was out. He would perspire. You know, the humanity of Christ. And so the disciples, they look and all they see is this human form. And so to begin to think that this man who they've been walking with for these three and a half years was something more than just a man, it didn't come that quickly or easily. So let's turn to the gospel, excuse me, to the first letter of John, John chapter 1. We're going to come back to Philippians momentarily. But in 1 John chapter 1 in verse 4, Um, <clears throat> start in verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, <clears throat> pardon me, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so John's writing before the end of the first century, and he's telling us that even in his day, there are false prophets. There were people that were perverting the gospel of Christ, even in, within the first century, a few decades after the death of Jesus. Then in verse 2, he tells us, By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has what? Come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, excuse me, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now already is in the world. So even in John's day, there's this spirit of Antichrist, someone wanting to replace Christ. And part of that teaching is that Christ really didn't come in the flesh, the incarnation. So the incarnation is a controversial topic. It's been controversial since it took place. It's controversial today in different aspects. And the reason is the incarnation is the mystery of all mysteries. Like, really? God became man? And so if we find ourselves in a conversation with someone, we're here this morning, and we're on opposite sides of a controversy, our attitude, our posture should be one of humility rather than one of arrogance. It's like the incarnation is the mystery of all mysteries, but it's vital for us to understand as far as we can as well. So what did it mean for Christ to walk into humanity. Well, let's turn back to Philippians chapter 2, which is our scripture reading this morning. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to kind of go through this bit by bit a little bit here. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read it again or read the context for us and then ask a couple of questions. First thing I want you to notice is in this passage, this is really what we could call an ethical passage of scripture. Paul's writing what he does so that it'll change your life. Let me say that again. Paul's writing what, it does, what he is so that it will change your life. It's a very practical point. Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind, let this attitude, which was in Christ Jesus, where should that attitude be? In you. So this is a very practical portion of scripture. It's an ethical portion of scripture. It's telling us, you and me, how we should live. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if we read the context, we read back up to verses 1 through 4, the problem in the church of Philippi is that there was a bit of strife taking place in the church. There was a bit of jostling for position. There was a bit of striving for supremacy in the church. And so Paul points to the incarnation as a practical way of changing our lives. Verse 6. Verse 5, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, or the King James says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon him the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and of things on earth and of things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And then he repeats in verses 12 and 13 this practical aspect, work out the salvation that God is working in you. So again, first thing we want to see is that this is a very practical concept. So let's look at the passage a little bit more and see what it teaches us about the incarnation and some of the questions that it might raise. First of all, verse 6, let's go back to verse 6. Again, the King James says, who being in the form of God, the New American Standard from which I read is, says, who although he existed in the form of God, a better translation would be this, who because he is in the form of God. There's a causal aspect here. In other words, Christ is in the form of God, and therefore, what did he do? Or what didn't he do? Who, being in the form of God, what's the rest of the verse say? Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Well, look at that in a moment. It starts here, he is in the form of God, but where does he end? The form of a servant, being found in likeness of a man, ultimately emptying himself, humbling himself, and dying on the cross. But it's because he is in the form of God that he lets go of the, the outward form of God and takes the form of a man. So the first thing we want to see here is that, again, it's part of God to give. Being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What, what does that phrase mean? Uh, this translation, the New American Standard, says that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, the word here where we're translating, where it's translated in the King James, thought it not robbery to be equal God, that word robbery is only used one time in the whole New Testament, and it's used right here. And it simply means a snatching or a grabbing. It could mean robbery, but it means this kind of grasping. So what's it saying? Christ, being, because he's in the form of God, doesn't think deity is something to be snatched at or held onto, but rather he makes himself of no reputation. One New Testament uh, scholar says this. I thought it was a good quotation. His name is C.F.D. Mewell. He wrote a lot of books on Greek. And he wrote this. He says, we think that God-likeness means having your own way, getting what you want. But Jesus saw God-likeness essentially as what? Giving and spending. Giving and spending. So Jesus, being in the form of God, because he is what God is, he didn't think that godliness was something to be pulled to himself, to be snatched at, to be grasped, to be held on to, because that's not what God is like. God is giving. God is other-centered all the time. God is spending. And that's what we see in the incarnation. And remember, Paul's whole point about this is that the way God is should be what? The way we are, or the way we should be. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Being in the form of God, he didn't grasp, didn't pull it to himself, didn't acquire, but gave. 
spending rather than getting for himself. Let's go back uh, before we do that. Let's uh, put up, I put up on the screen here, excuse me, a couple of diagrams. So here we got a circle, and on one side of each part of the circle is the divinity and humanity. We kind of think about this being in the form of God, taking the form of the servant. And as I said earlier, there was a lot of controversy. And we read earlier 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And one of the first controversies about the incarnation was this, that there was a group of people, they're, they're called the Docetists, from a Greek word which means to appear, and they said that Christ really didn't come in humanity. That his humanity was only a facade. In other words, he looked human, but he really wasn't human. It was just some kind of a, not a mirage, obviously, because they could touch him, but it was only an outward form. This was one of the first controversies over the incarnation, that he was really just divine, and the form of his physical being was just a shimmer. It was just a deception, in a sense. It was just looked like he was human, but he really wasn't. Why would somebody come up with an idea like that? What do you think? Why? What's wrong with being human? Okay, we have this fallen nature, and humanity is the place of, uh, well, sorry, in my mind I started thinking of some things Donald Trump said. <laughs> well, now that I'll let the cat out of the bag, I'll say it. So, you know, um, pardon me, but Donald Trump seems to have a problem with people's humanity. I mean, people perswire, and he makes comments of them. People have to use the bathroom, and he makes comments about them. These are all just normal human things, right? Well, the Docetists as well thought there's something icky about humanity. And Jesus couldn't have come in real human nature. Of course, the Bible says he was in the form of God and he became a man. The other, one of the other controversies of this is Arianism, which is the total opposite. He was completely man, but he wasn't God. Completely man, but not God. There's another controversy that took place. Uh, actually, a lot of early Seventh-day Adventist pioneers were semi-Aryan. Some were strong Aryans. Um, but this was, again, a, a misunderstanding of, again, Philippians, that Jesus was in the form of God, but he became total human. Let's go back to our text. Um, Philippians chapter 2. Again, he starts in the form of God, he ends as the form of a servant, as a man. He didn't grasp at equality with God because that's not what God does. God gives. In verse 7, it says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped in the New American Standard. He didn't count it robbery to be equal with God in the, New, in the King James, rather. Verse 7 says this. In the King James, it says in verse 7, but he did what? Made himself of no reputation. The New, the New American Standard, again, says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Well, what does this mean, he emptied himself? Well, if you read it that way, if you read it in the King James, he made himself of no reputation. That simply means he didn't draw things to himself. 
But this whole idea that he emptied himself, if you say that, it raises a natural question, and that is, he emptied himself of what? What does it mean he emptied himself? And so there's a, an idea that's quite current in Christianity today, and actually in different parts of the Adventist church, and that is that he emptied himself of certain attributes of deity. In other words, um, when he became human, he could only be in one place because he was a human. And so perhaps he emptied himself of the ability to be everywhere. Or he emptied himself of the ability to know everything because he was only human. I'd like to push back against that idea. I'm not sure that's a biblical concept. I think what this passage is saying, if we look at it carefully, Christ emptied himself, but how did he empty himself? What does the text say? He emptied himself by doing what? Taking the form of a servant. In other words, Christ empties himself, pours himself out, perhaps we could say, by taking our humanity, by becoming one with us. Let me share a couple of quotations with you. So I began thinking through this this week and praying over it, actually for the past several weeks, came across this um, passage. This is from an article from a magazine called Review and Herald article. Uh, today it's called the Advent Review, but this is back in the 1900s, 1905, June 15th. Notice what this quotation says. He, that's Christ, veiled his divinity with what? The garb of humanity. Veiled his divinity with the garb of humanity. When you saw Christ, we didn't see him, people didn't see him as he was before he came. If they had, everybody would have clearly been overwhelmed or died. He came in the form of a human. He clothed, he veiled his divinity with the garb of humanity. But notice this, he did not what? Part with his divinity. So he's divine and what? Human. A divine human savior, he came to stand at the head of the fallen race to share in, in their experience, this is important, to share in their experience from childhood to manhood. What does that mean? The reality of the incarnation is that Jesus walks where you and I walk. To share our experience from childhood to manhood. Now, what happens as a child grows from child to manhood? Well, they learn all sorts of things, right? And Jesus, in the incarnation, in his humanity, learned as he was growing in his humanity. As he began to grow, and in his humanity, he entered into his teenage and early collegiate years. What happens to people's hormones at that point in life? What do they do? They go crazy. Okay, so... He shared in their experience, not in our sin, but in our experience. Entering into our experience. Let's look at another quotation. His divinity, there's that same thought, was veiled beneath humanity. Notice this sentence. He hid within himself those all-powerful attributes which belong to him as one equal with God. Wow. Inside the human form of Jesus, were all those divine attributes that made him God. But he did not exercise those on his own behalf and under his own will. 
continually he is doing what the Father did. So it's not as though he doesn't have omniscience or omnipotence or any of those things, but that he doesn't utilize them for himself. He's living not as God on earth, but as man on earth. Being in the form of God, he thought equality with God, not something to be held on to, not something to be grasped, not something to pull to himself because he gives. Well, how did he give? How did he empty himself? How did he make himself of no reputation? He took the form of a servant, and he becomes like us. He becomes human. And we think about this throughout the whole, his whole life, and we could think of lots of different experiences. Uh, one that came to my mind as I was thinking about this was um, when Jesus was on the boat. It's in Mark chapter 4 starting in verse 35 through to verse 41, I believe. Mark 4, 35 through 40 or 41. And it's a description when Jesus is on a boat and they're crossing the lake. And you remember the story. As they're crossing the lake, Jesus falls asleep in the boat. And what happens as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee there? Terrible storm. Huge winds, you know, everything's turned upside down. Lightning, thunder, waves crashing into the boat and the boat begins to sink. What's Jesus doing? Sleeping. Love that picture. Sleeping. Doesn't matter what's going on around him. He's sleeping. And when he wakes up, the disciples tear, uh, excuse me, fear and terrified. They wake up. Don't you care that we're perishing? Wake up. What's wrong with you? I would say the same thing. You know what? And he wakes up and he looks around. And what does he say? Peace. Be still. Notice this quotation. This is from Desire of Ages, that wonderful book on the life of Christ, page 336. But he rested not, this is when he says, peace be still, he rested not in the possession of almighty power. Now he still had that, but it was clothed, it was, it was um, laid aside, we could say, he wasn't accessing it. He rested not in the possession of almighty power, he trusted where? In the Father's might. It was in faith, faith in, God, in God's love and care, that Jesus rested. And the power of that word which stilled the storm was the power of God. So in the incarnation, although he still is God in human flesh, he chooses not to exercise his own divine powers for himself. And he lives as you and I have to live. And he faces controversy the way you and I have to face controversy. And he faces the storms of life the way you and I have to face them. And in the middle of a tremendous storm, he wakes up and he is at peace. And why is he at peace? Because he knows he can walk on water? Is he at peace because he knows he has all this divine power at his ability? He's at peace because he knows what God is like. And you and I can know what God is like because of the incarnation. And we see God revealed in the incarnation, giving, loving, concerned for others, concerned for us. And as he woke up and rested in his Father, we too can have that same rest and experience. Trust in God's word. Thank you, Aaron. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2 and look at another aspect here question, another area of controversy that comes up. Um, 
Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And this question, I'm really not sure where the question came up uh, originally, but it has to do with when he became man, did he really identify with us? Or as the question is often posed, was he more like Adam before the fall or is he much more like us? Well, you know, if you read the scriptures carefully, the answer to me seems pretty clear that he came into humanity as it was when he came into the world. And that's what we find here in Hebrews chapter 2. So let's look at this passage. Hebrews 2. And again, this is clearly a controversy. People talk about it from different sides. And the most important thing for us is to stand in awe of the incarnation and to continue to study it. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. Therefore, since the children, that would be us, share in flesh and blood, that would be our common humanity, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Really seems like Paul's trying to emphasize a point there. He himself likewise also partook of the same. The same what? The same flesh and blood. Why? That through death, here's the reason for the incarnation, through death he might render powerless him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And he might free those through fear of death, excuse me, he might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made. Paul uses a very strong expression here. He was obligated to be made like his brethren in what? In how much? In all things. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18. For since he himself was tempted... In that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. First Sabbath of the New Year. Has anybody been tempted yet? I mean, what? It's only been two days. You really been tempted already? Who's ready to come to your aid? Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's walked in your shoes. Because he had to be made in all things like us so that he could be, he was tempted so he knows how to give you help. Amen. He knows what it's like to be in a storm of life. He knows what it's like to face opposition. He knows what, it like, he, what it's like to see all his hopes be dashed. He knows what it's like to be forsaken. He knows what it's like to feel all alone. He knows what it's like to feel the force of temptation far greater than you have ever felt it. And he knows how to give you aid at that time. This is not abstract. Well, it's got abstract aspects to it, I admit it. But the point of the theology is to change our life. The point of Paul's writing in Philippians 2 is ethical. You should be like this because he did that. Because God's giving, you really should be much more humble than you are. Because he faced temptation, he can help you in your temptations. He knows everything that we're going through. 
and he wants to walk alongside of us and help us and strengthen us. And instead of looking at the incarnation as a point of argumentation and division, although people take different sides, we should look at it in total amazement and just say, praise God that God stepped into humanity. I'd like to read another quotation along these lines, I believe. Christ, this is from another, one of those Review and Herald articles, Review and Herald, July 17, 1900. Christ did in, what's that word? In reality. Incarnation, the reality. Christ did in reality unite the offending nature of man, that's our fallen humanity, with what? His own sinless nature. And because of his, this, his, excuse me, this act of condescension, he would be enabled to pour out his blessings in behalf of the fallen race. Thus he has made it possible for us to partake of his nature. The whole of his earthly life was a preparation for the altar, for the cross. Because that's what God's like. God's giving all the time. God wants to be with you forever. And God's done everything he can to make that come to reality. Even really walking in humanity. And when we think of Christ facing these different issues, one of the biggest questions uh, that comes to my mind, I was at a retreat several weeks back, and I asked a question of the congregation, like, how many of you are ever plagued with doubt? Well, let me ask this congregation, how many of you are ever plagued with doubt or impacted by doubt? A few of you, and the rest of you are liars, right? <laughs> um, so doubt is insidious. It's there, just like faith. Faith and doubt are two aspects of our mind. I can choose to believe. I can choose to doubt. There's things that press upon us. But the biggest area of doubt is when we, turn, we begin to doubt the word of God. And we think of the Jesus temptation, the first major temptation that's brought out in Scripture, of course, is Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, where uh, Jesus goes into the wilderness of temptation. He's fasted for 40 days. And of course, Satan comes to him looking like an angel of light and says, you know, if you're really the Son of God, if, 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 trying to get the Son of God to doubt. So let's look at this quotation. Um, Desire of Ages, page 119. He had come to live life as a man among men, and it was the word that declared his connection with heaven. That's just an amazing thought. Remember, he clothed his divinity with his humanity, and those divine attributes, he didn't access them, only at his father's command. It was Satan's purpose to cause him to doubt that word. It was the word that declared his connection with heaven. It was Satan's purpose to cause him to doubt that word. It's the word that declares your connection with heaven. It's the word that says you are a son, a daughter of God. It's the word that says you are redeemed. It's the word that said God loves you. It's the word that says God envelops you with his presence, and Satan wants to get you to doubt that word. Or neglect that word. Don't even find out what it says. And that's what's happening in the wilderness of temptation. Satan's there pressing on Satan, trying to get Jesus to doubt the word of God. If Christ's confidence in God could be shaken, Satan knew the victory in the whole controversy would be won. What's the point? 
In the reality of the incarnation, Jesus is continually depending on his Father. Depending on who his Father is. What the character of God is. His confidence in God. That's what's happening. And that's what happens in our life as well. Do we really know who God is? We see him in the incarnation. Can we really trust him? Of course we can. And then finally, ultimately, at the cross, it says this. This is a second volume of the Testimonies, page 209. Even doubts assail the dying Son of God. What were those doubts? Christ could not see through the portals of the tomb as he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's wrestling. Is he really going to be successful? The displeasure of the Father for sin and its penalty, which is death, were all that he could realize through the amazing darkness. All he could see, all he could feel was the weight of guilt, the weight of sin, the weight of separation. But there's one thing that keeps him going. He knows what his Father is like. He knows the character of God. He knows who his God is. He was tempted to fear that sin was so offensive in the sight of his father that he could not be reconciled to his son. The reality, the incarnation, this is what Christ experiencing. And what gets him through? No, I know what God's like. And even though everything else is pulling me away from it, I know whom I serve, as Paul said. I know that God is love. I know that, that by faith, God's going to open up a way that countless millions will be benefited through my life. And so even shrouded in that darkness, shrouded in that doubt, Jesus steps forward. The incarnation. What's the reality of it? Well, there's a lot that we really don't understand. How is the divine nature and the human nature blended? I really don't know. Way over my head. But the reality is there that he united his divine nature with my frail, fallen nature. And he did that for a purpose so that I could unite my fallen humanity with his strong divinity. And that my life can be changed and your life can be changed as well. Question is, will it be changed? Will we take advantage of the tremendous gift that's been given to us? Think back to Matt's children's story there. You know, God's doing CPR on our hearts all the time, trying to get that cold heart of stone transformed into a hotter heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit continually massaging our hearts. Just let me in. Let me transform you. Let me make you like I am. Would you like that experience? That divine heart change, that's what God wants to do for each one of us. Divinity is not grasping, it's giving, it's opening, it's serving, it's blessing other people. Would you like that experience? Start this new year, ask God to continue his CPR in our lives till we're totally transformed and we're really like him. What a blessing that would be, amen? To have hearts that completely beat in unison with the heart of Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that it's your presence near us that can strengthen us in times of temptation, in times of loneliness, in times of fear. Thank you for the tremendous gift of the incarnation. Thank you for 
risking all of eternity for me, for us, individually. Lord, may that great sacrifice transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.